And this man doesn't walk, he crawls. It's a cautionary tale. If you're in politics, you've probably heard it. He's talking about my wife. But it's fortunate for him he's not on this platform beside me. A good woman. The Muskie rule. Don't cry in front of the press, or you'll end up like Edmund Muskie, whose 1972 presidential bid imploded when he choked up in public. Let me talk. In today's show, which is the first installment in a series on men and crying, we will revisit the incident that led to the Muskie rule. I'm Jesse Rhodes, and this is Manish. What was it like on that uh, famous bus trip when you were heading into the North Country in a snowstorm? Well, I think you're probably uh, talking about uh, the man that wasn't so nice. That's Jane Muskie being interviewed by Don Nickel in 2002. He's asking her about a nine-hour bus ride she took in the middle of a snowstorm with a traveling press corps. And that bus ride in the snowstorm is important because it sets in motion a chain of events that will end with Jane's husband, Ed Muskie, crying in front of the press at the door of the man that wasn't so nice. I was, ultimately he was involved, but on that uh, bus trip, uh, it was very stormy and a very difficult bus ride. Mm. And according to Mary Hoyt, you were trying to help the press people, most of whom were women, right. uh, get through it. But for any of this to make sense, we need to back up. Because to understand these chain of events, it helps to know something about Ed and Jane Muskie. Certainly not rich. He had, uh, I, I think, five brothers and sisters. You know, so they they weren't well off, but they they got by okay during the depression. That's Jim Witherell, who wrote a biography about Edmund Muskie. His father was a tailor in in downtown Rumford, and his clientele included uh, all of the bankers and the big shots at the paper mill, the, the president, all the executives there. Both Jane and Ed were working class kids. Ed's parents emigrated from Poland. Jane had a single mom who worked as a cook. Ed, who was a shy, brainy kid, graduated with honors, got a scholarship to Bates College, then a scholarship to Cornell Law School. And when he returned to Maine, after school and the war, he was no longer just the shy Taylor's son. He was the lawyer. And two ladies in town thought they'd like to fix up Jane, who was just graduating from high school at the time, with Ed. He, he certainly would not have married anyone who couldn't vote. <laughs> so I think he was very um, worried that people would think that he was robbing the cradle. Uh, so anyway, my brother Howard said uh, to Ed one time, he didn't tell me this for for a couple of years, but uh, he kept saying, you're too old for my little sister, and uh, 
that sort of thing. To be clear, because this does come into play later, Ed was about 13 years older than Jane, which raised a lot of eyebrows. But Ed did win over Jane and her family, especially Jane's mom. But uh, anyway, my mother loved him because he was tall and he could change light bulbs and he always was willing to do anything around the house. They got married three years later. Ed started working as a lobbyist in the main legislature. He was known for his passionate outbursts. People said he had a temper, but he was also well-liked. He built a lot of connections across the state, became a state representative, and when he won the governor race of 1954, the national newspapers took note of him as the young Democrat who charmed a Republican state. Jane supported his ambitions, but she mostly stayed at home and took care of the kids, seeing Ed whenever he'd come home from campaigning. And there were a lot of campaigns. Besides the two state representative campaigns and the governor race, there were the four Senate races, the vice presidential race, and then in 1972, the presidential bid. And this is when Jane finds herself on a bus in the middle of a blizzard with a group of reporters. It's the middle of December, New Hampshire, and she's campaigning as the potential first lady. It's her first trip. There are banks of snow building up on the side of the road, and she notices some of the reporters getting nervous. To cheer them up, she passes around drinks and starts cracking jokes. This type of hobnobbing between reporters and candidates was not unusual for the time, so Jane let her guard down. So many of the people on the bus were scared to death to be riding out in the banks of snow, and others were kept wanting to get off so they could to get their, their articles into their press people. And I, I don't know, we just started to sing and we tried, Mary and I tried to cheer them up and uh, that didn't work, obviously. That obviously is referring to what happened next. Candy Stroud, a reporter for Women's Wear Daily, filed her story, catching the bus with Jane Muskie. Put your notebooks away, girls. Mama's gonna sing tonight. With that, Jane Gray Muskie lit another filter tip cigarette and invited the members of her traveling press corps for cheese and drinks in her room. The article described Jane as colorful and outspoken. Jane admits to being a feminist in one quote. But there was one paragraph in particular that people remember. Maybe because of the boozing or smoking, but probably mostly because of the dirty jokes. She thinks nothing of telling you she couldn't get her black cotton boots over her elastic stockings, that she didn't want to wear a particular dress because someone else had the GD thing on, or shouting, let's tell dirty jokes, or pass me my purse, I haven't had my morning cigarette yet. And there are other gems too, like the dreaded little dreams that come from mixing booze with wine, or the fact that she calls Ed, who remember is 13 years older than her, Big Daddy. And it's these details in the article that kicks everything into gear. Because what happens next is this. The Manchester Union Leader, which at the time is one of the biggest newspapers in New Hampshire, runs a letter that claims Ed used the word Canuck, which was a derogatory word for French Canadians, on the campaign trail. And a day later, the paper runs an excerpt of the bus story with the headline, Big Daddy's Jane. 
It focuses on the drinking and the dirty jokes. And because it's a week before the primary, Ed acts. Again, here's Don Nickel interviewing Jane Muskie. My question to you is, uh, before Ed uh, delivered that public rebuke to Loeb, did he discuss with you uh, at any length his uh, feelings about the attack on you and, and uh, how he proposed to deal with it? Uh, no, he didn't really discuss it with me. I probably would have said, don't, don't do it. it. It'll come home to haunt you. And, uh, and I can take it. But uh, I didn't say that. He's been campaigning in other states. He's tired, and he's enraged at this depiction of Jane as a lush. The campaign has taken a hit in the polls, whether because of the Canuck allegation or the Jane article is unclear. So he flies back to Maine. He had to explain himself when we got home to Maine, to a lot of audiences, though. And I felt really badly that uh, he had to go through that, but... He kept assuring me that uh, uh, everything would be okay. He tells his staff to park a flatbed truck in front of the union leader and to call the press. He'll address his remarks to the paper's publisher, William Loeb, in front of his building. It's 9.30 Saturday morning. There's a crowd, and the snow is really coming down. But it's just warm enough to melt. In fact, reporters are worried about their notebooks getting wet. And then Ed steps up to the mic and speaks. Well, I think I might uh, then begin. First of all, if I might... He introduces the people standing on the truck with him, colleagues and family members. With that done, he gets down to business. By attacking me, by attacking my wife, he has proved himself to be a gutless coward. I've chosen this spot in front of his building to give him an opportunity, if he has the guts, to come down here and answer anything I have to say. I've also chosen this spot in front of his building because I can't get this story told through his columns. Ed talks about the Canuck letter for a while. He talks about how people used to call him a Polak how he hates derogatory language and would never use it. He sounds indignant, but in that John Wayne, cool kind of way. He's calm. But then, you know, I've been in politics all my life. I'm no child. I know that these sorts of things happen. I've got to be prepared to take them. And then about 15 minutes into the speech, things take a turn for the person. What really got me was this editorial attacking my wife, Big Daddy's Jane. And this man doesn't walk, he crawls. Even my regular 
talking about my wife. Maybe I said all I should on that point. But it's fortunate for him he's not on this platform beside me. A good woman. Ed's face crumples. Snow is falling on his forehead, melting and trickling down his cheeks. Or are they tears? He wipes his nose and his eyes. Let me talk. What happens next is almost as striking as the lengthy pause. The audience quiets down, and Ed, perhaps thinking better of it, just drops the thread, turning instead to a man next to him. I'd like to introduce you to Art Barker, if I may. When Ed walks off the stage, he tells his campaign manager that he didn't mean to get so emotional. He let his temper get the better of him. His campaign manager, though, isn't worried. It humanizes him. But when the Washington Post comes out later that day, and they see how the event is characterized, they become worried. With tears streaming down his face and his voice choked with emotion, Senator Edmund S. Muskie stood in the snow outside the Manchester Union leader this morning. In defending his wife, Muskie broke down three times in as many minutes, uttering a few words and then standing silent in the near blizzard, rubbing at his face, his shoulders heaving. Across the country, newspapers reported that Muskie had broken down in tears. He couldn't control himself at a press conference. He cried. And we could easily get lost in the conspiracy of Edmund Muskie's tears. Reporters who were closest to the flatbed truck swear to this day that snow was melting off his forehead the whole time. There were no tears. An AP reporter later said that editors added the crying details to his version once they got word of the Washington Post's angle. Or we could disappear into the conspiracy of the Canuck letter, which was later discovered to have been fabricated by a Nixon aide. But the important thing is not whether tears were mixed in with melting snow. The important thing is what happened next. William Loeb, the newspaper publisher, was quoted as saying that Muskie was near hysterical and not the man to have his finger on the nuclear button. Even McGovern, the more liberal candidate, later used it against him. And bumper stickers began to appear in Florida, which is where the next primary was, that said, vote for Muskie, or he'll cry. Again, here's Jim Witherell. I think the next primary, I, I believe, was Florida. I think he won the next couple of primaries, but not by as much uh, as he should have or he, or he hoped to, or it, it you know, started to look like he wasn't a, a, as strong a candidate at that point. Um, because of the the dirty tricks and and the the, um, the New Hampshire incident, and so Edmund Muskie's bid for president collapsed. Not, it's important to note, 
just because he appeared to cry. He was a moderate liberal in a year when many people were passionately opposed to Vietnam and Nixon. Ironically, Muskie, known for his temper, wasn't fiery enough for the electorate. In addition, he took New Hampshire for granted and campaigned fewer days there than McGovern did. The narrative quickly became, Muskie barely wins a state that should have been a shoe-in. But those tears, or melting snow, or whatever they were, became a big part of the story, too. That the senator was unbalanced, soft, shaky. He was not only the wrong man for the job, he wasn't even a man. All that was left for Ed to do was slip back to his post in the Senate. He never ran for president again. Special thanks to the Edmund S. Muskie Archives and Special Collections Library, John Milne, Jim Witherell, Emily Polina, Brandon Paschal, and Shoshana Walter. To learn more about the music you heard on today's show, go to our new website, manish.weebly.com. Today's show is part one of Boys Don't Cry, a series Manish is doing on men and crime. Keep your eyes out for part two to find out what would happen if Ed Muskie did it again, all of it, today. Uh, Mitt Romney cried twice during the 2008 campaign. Barack Obama cried a day, be- a couple days before the election when his grandmother had died, two involving Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, right? And so there are these uh, nine other incidents, and uh, the media really only wants to talk about one that's barely a display of any kind of emotion. That's next time on Manish.